0: Today, uh, we're starting a new series, and uh, it's really all about friendship, and um, we're going to talk in the next four weeks on what is God's plan for our friendships? How does he want to use us in friendships, and how does he want to use friendships in our life? Um, It's designed to help us understand that and what God is inviting us to do to become better friends. Now if you've been here before when I'm speaking, I typically don't introduce a series. I don't know if you've paid attention to that. Phil usually does that part. So I I uh, picked his brain a little, like, what do you want me to say about this series? Because I'm doing one of the messages. And so the one thing he wanted you to know is that this is not an expositional s- series. Now, that's a big word, so I'm just going to describe it. We tend to actually go through a book of the Bible not quite verse by verse, but maybe story by story or passage by passage, that's not what this series is going to be. It's going to be more topical, the biblical definition of friendship and how God wants to use our friendships. So we're going to kind of hop around in the Bible. Before, as we start today, I wanted to give you, I have a tale of two friendships. So the first friendship is appropriate for today since it's Mother's Day because I want to tell you that everything I learned about friendship, I learned from my mother. I know. Thank you, Jillian. Uh, So my mom, um, when I was young, probably in elementary school, my mom did this thing called club. It wasn't the club, but it was club. And club was a gathering of her high school friends. And once a month, they would gather at someone's home and they'd bring appetizers. They would bring wine. They were wine drinkers and they would circle up at our house. They circled up in the living room and they'd talk for hours And they did this monthly. So my mom, at that point, was a single mom. And so she would actually drag me to the other club events that weren't at our house. And I'd play with their kids. And um, it was kind of a memory for me that this is what they did. The thing is, is that they kept doing that all throughout their lives. And so they didn't actually—eventually, they stopped meeting monthly— but they continued to gather to support each other and to catch up with each other. And um, they saw each other through a lot from getting married to having kids, some of them divorced, some of them lost husbands, some of them had husbands that had a um, illness that they walked through together. Um, My mom started a business. And I'll never forget at her funeral, they had just met for another time. some of the gals came and showed me pictures of how they were still supporting my mom to the end. And what I learned from that is that friendship is consistent and supportive, and it's sometimes even inconvenienced. The other tale of friendship is not quite so um, inspiring. Uh, When I was in my 20s, my roommate Wendy and I, um, we started going to a new church. And um, we were looking for other single gals. We were in our 20s. And so Sherry started coming to the church, and we decided we were going to get to know her. So we invited her out for coffee, dinner, I don't remember, and we sat across the table from her, and apparently we peppered her with questions. Um, If you know me, you know I'm a big question asker, but... Um, And it was fine. We went home. We were so excited. We're like, we're going to get to know her better. We're going to do more things with her. And a couple months later, as we were getting to know her, she said, yeah, that was really intimidating. It was like the Inquisition. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be friends with you guys still. (laughs) Um, So what's different about those two is um, they happen kind of, we can be both of those people, can't we? person who's really good at friendships and supportive, and the person who is just unaware of how they're coming up <laughs> and intimidating people they want to get to know. And so that's actually the point of what we're going to talk about today. The point being that we can know all the things. We can know how to b- build a friendship. We can actually know all of the gospel and want to use, allow God to use our friendships. But if we don't know how to make friends and grow friendships, we're kind of stuck in the water, and so today we want to look at friendship being um, about discipleship, right? Um, and then coming weeks, we're going to talk about friendship as a sacrifice. I don't know if Phil wants me to do this, but I'm doing it, and I hope he's not changing the t- topics. Um, friendship as justice and friendship on mission, right? These are all things we, need, we want to learn about and hear what God has to say. But today we're talking about how God wants to use our friendships and use it in our lives. And so when we become better friends, we become better disciples. That's the gist of what we're going to talk about today. So before I kind of launch into what I'm bringing to the table, let's pray and ask God to be with us today. So Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to talk about friendship and to talk about our role in being transformed by friendship and transforming friendship in our world. And so I pray that you would just speak to us from your word, speak to us from what we're going to be talking about today, and that um, you would remind us and invite us to become better friends and better disciples. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So when I thought about this, um, I had all kinds of options to go, but, but I really wanted to talk about what makes us better friends. And so um, I came up with three things that, three ideas that I think make us better friends. The first idea is that we become better friends when we understand who we are. Friendship at its core is connecting our hearts to the heart of someone else, isn't it? So what gets in our way of that sometimes? Sometimes we do great at this, and sometimes we just don't know how we're showing up. And I think it's because sometimes we operate on autopilot, right? Right. We can operate just like my story with my friend Sherry, who is still my friend today. Um, But we didn't know how we were showing up. We didn't realize we were intimidating her or um, that it was a little awkward for her. Um, Phil would like that because he likes to embrace the awkward, but she didn't. She was more of an introvert. And so um, we show up in autopilot when we see the world the way we've always seen the world. And we don't actually examine our thoughts, our views. We show up... um, We're on autopilot when we just keep reacting to the same things over and over. Or even when we show up in friendship and we expect others to um, see the world the way we see it. And when it comes down to it, understanding ourselves uh, boils down to, are we self-aware of how we show up in the world? In her book Insight, Tasha Uryk, she's an organizational psychologist, did this study, and in the study, she um, she interviewed people to ask about their own self-awareness. Ninety-five percent of the people said they were self-aware, but only fifteen percent. <laughs> I should make you guys guess how much, but fifteen percent were actually self-aware, uh, which means that all of us have work to do when it comes to this. The key is to live the examined life. If you look at Scripture, Psalm 139. David ends that psalm with, search my heart and know my thoughts, right? Um, Lamentations, where Jeremiah is uh, kind of recovering and, um, from a, their city, has been overrun. He is saying, let us examine our hearts and return to the Lord. You see this throughout scripture. And in the parables of Jesus and other stories, you see how people didn't examine their lives and were turned away. And so what are the th- components that can help us when it comes to this? I had two that I came up with. Examining our life helps us become who God made us to be. Psalm 139 says he knit us together in our w- mother's womb, and he has a desire of who he wants us to be. Also, examining our lives and learning self-awareness helps us um, to embrace the idea that we can be transformed in our friendships I have this second friend Sherry spelled totally different so it makes sense to me but not to you Um, I met her when I first moved here to Minnesota and I joined this small group it was a couples and me small group and she used to say friendships community is the sandpaper on which God wants to polish us and if we can't we aren't good friends and if we are not uh, engaging in friendship God can't use that to polish us and make us more like him so my own journey through self-awareness started with the Enneagram. So I don't know if you know what the Enneagram is. I am an Enneagram coach. And if you've been here at all, you have heard Phil shout out numbers from up here, right? Seven, three, one. That's the Enneagram. I'm sorry. It's numbers and it's also names, but no one ever uses the names except Enneagram coaches. So we all use numbers. Um, it is a personality typing system that is based on why you do what you do. It's based on your core motivation. And um, there's nine types, and no type is greater than the other, but it can really help us with self-awareness. And that is what helped me with self-awareness. Now, what I'd like to say is you don't have to use the Enneagram, um, but I would encourage you to find something that helps you build self-awareness. For me, that tool has been the Enneagram. And when I started my business, I went and got certified in San Francisco, and I came back, and the first people who were volunteering to work with me were Phil and Leona. (laughs) And so I sat down, they came to my townhouse, and we sat down, and I helped them discover their, their types, and then what they could do with those, and they were all in. They just were so excited about it. In fact, Leona fancies herself a little Enneagram coach herself. Um, (laughs) But I, I say all this to say two things. One is today at Clarity, we use the Enneagram with our leadership team. We all know our types and can use that not only to understand our strengths, but also understand what can get in our way. But also we use it with premarital couples. And so before they get married, Phil sends them to me for a session where they get to know each other through the Enneagram. And I wanna say that today we're gonna talk Bible, so if you're worried that we're gonna talk all about the Enneagram, but Phil really encouraged me because I tend not to share about that knowledge that I have um, to combine that in this this series on friendship because it can be a tool to help us grow in this area. So when it comes to the Enneagram and self-awareness, one of the things I like to say is that the reason it helps you become self-aware is that your type can also be your greatest strength and your strength overdone. And a lot of times it's formed by a coping mechanism we pick up when we're young that um, to say, this is how I find value and love in the world. And, And that's what I like to say about it. And I think when we're talking about friendships, our coping mechanisms can get in the way of how we relate to people. They can be in the room with us. And so it's really important for us to be aware of that and to be working on it. Now, self-awareness isn't a, I, I did it, you know, I, I took a day and I decided to be self-aware and then I'm never doing that again. But it is a journey. It is a practice of saying, how can I become more and more self-aware and emotionally healthier in my friendships? So the Enneagram can inform us, what do we need to be aware of when, when it comes to how we show up with people? And there's four things that form your Enneagram type But even if you're not using the Enneagram, you can use these ideas to say, how can I become a little more self-aware? So the four things are core core desires. So what is it that we want? What is it that, that drives us? So for me, all through college, what drove me is, I wanted to have a job with meaning and purpose. And that was really significant to me. And sometimes that got in the way of my relationships, we'll see later, I'll share a little thing later. Um, Our core fears, what are we most afraid of or that could happen? And then we kind of overcompensate with our coping mechanism. Our core struggle, which is maybe a little different, but it, it kind of, Paul talks about this as like the thorn in his flesh. And so this whole idea of like, maybe it's people pleasing, maybe it's over planning or overthinking, could be a core struggle. And this one may be harder for us to figure out if we're not dialed into the Enneagram, but we all have a message our heart longs to hear. Examples of that are you are good, you are loved, you will be taken care of, your presence matters. So there's something that really our heart longs to have. So how does this really help us when it comes to being self-aware and in relationships? Our coping mechanism can get in our way when we relate to people, right? If we keep relating in the same way and not understanding how we're doing that, and how that could be a roadblock to better friendships, we just keep going on autopilot and we don't connect the way God intended us to connect. I love Ephesians 4 here. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I did a little bit of study. This verse is written in the present tense. And so what most scholars would say about this is this is not a one-time deal of we just put it off when we come to Christ. That happens, but it's a continual putting off of the old self and renewing our mind and putting on the new self. When we become self-aware, we know what to bring to Jesus to take off and what to put on. And that's why it's so important, right? Right? I don't know about you, but I want to continually get better at following him and being a good friend. Part of that means embracing not only what's good about us, what we like about ourselves, but what we don't like so much about ourselves. In his book, David Benner, um, the book is called The Gift of Being Yourself. He says this, Any hope that you can know yourself without accepting the things that you wish were not true about you is an illusion. Reality must be embraced before it can be changed. Until we are prepared to accept the self we actually are, we block God's transforming work of making us into our true self that is hidden in God. Our friendships can be that. They can be what we give to others and what they give back to us as becoming our true self. And our friendships can expose those things, right? If we're listening, if we're available. We want to be better disciples by uh, becoming—understanding ourselves. Second thought—my notes are backwards, I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Second thought that I had, not only is it understanding ourselves, but is showing up with compassion for others. When I started studying the Enneagram, it was enlightening for me because I started understanding, oh, that's why I keep doing that and I feel stuck in that. But the added benefit, the bonus of that was that I was able to actually now see what uh, what was driving others and have more compassion for them. I think when we become more self-aware, that's the natural overflow, right? We start to understand, oh, people don't think, see the world the way I do, and how can I have compassion on that? Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says this, "'Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved,' Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. We are called to be compassionate, kind, patient, not my strong suit. I kind of looked up some definitions from a commentary because I thought there's a lot of words there that we're supposed to be called to do. Um, So compassion, which is our key word there, um, really is about not becoming callous to the needs of others. Understanding that others have needs that are different than ours. Kindness is really just goodness and generosity. And how can we be more kind and good and generous in our friendships? Humility is to stop trying to um, attain honor over another. Um, Some would say not throwing game pieces across the table. I do that sometimes because I'm really competitive. (laughs) True confession. Now you know all my secrets. Um, Gentleness, making allowances for others. Backwards, so I have to go backwards. Uh, and patience, a willingness to endure wrongs. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That all comes with tra- seeking to understand our friends. So the Enneagram is not just a tool for self awareness, it's a tool for compassion. Ian Morgan Cron, he uh, wrote a book called The Road Back to You. He says this, The Enneagram is a tool that awakens our compassion for people just as they are. Not the people we wish they would become so our lives would become easier, but just as they are. I don't know where my time is. Um, I will say, when I, after I... Um, worked with Phil and Leona, I saw a difference in their relationship because they had new language for what the other was doing instead of, uh, you know, sometimes I think in relationships, maybe it's just me. And then again, another secret is out. But sometimes people like, you're like, are you just doing that to drive me crazy? Or (laughs) anyone experienced that? Anyone? No one. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm the only one. Um, And so I wanted to use an example of the Enneagram system that can really help us understand kind of that core fear, that core struggle is sometimes really real and when we can under, seek to understand our people, it helps us move with compassion. So the Enneagram is based on this triad. It's, um, there's three different areas called the center of intelligence. So the center of intelligence in its essence is how we perceive information. And how you perceive information also affects what you're good at, but also what can get in your way. And so I'm just going to go over the three centers of intelligence really quickly so that you can just get a grasp. Now, you don't have to use this, but it can be a way, an easy way for you to go, well, oh, that person's really struggling with this because of that. So the first center of intelligence is the heart center. And these guys actually perceive their information through feelings. So they're, they feel something and then they turn it into information that they then make decisions on. Um, Their natural strengths are, they're great connectors because they're really mindful of the people in the room. And so they make great community builders, great friendships come more easily to them. They also know how to read a room. They have this radar. So when they walk into a room, they can kind of gauge and kind of just feel when there's tension, when there's stress, when there's happiness and joy. Where they get into trouble is that people are big to them. And one of the things that they really struggle with is people-pleasing. The other thing is that their sense of identity comes from others. And that can really get in the way of friendships. I'm in this center. And sometimes I need a lot of affirmation, right? I'm waiting. If I feel like there's tension in the room, I want that other person to affirm me. They don't always get it. And so what do I do with that? But that can show up in my friendships. The second center is the head center. And these guys are in their minds. And they perceive information through their minds so they 're really good at analyzing information problem solving they can make great problem solver, solvers. They think things through for the most part. Where they get into trouble is they can overthink. They all are driven by a fear and anxiety. Some um, they all handle that differently, and what they are fearful of is different, but they tend to want to prepare for that fear and anxiety with something. They do something to kind of keep that down. And their minds are always going, so it's hard to turn that off. The last one is the gut center. These guys actually perceive information through their instincts, and their natural strengths are they're very action-oriented. So if you know someone in that center, they just take action. They do first think and feel later. Um, and they, um, they really have a heart for justice and naturally see where they can move into action to um, get justice for people. Where they get into trouble is, one is control. They like to have control of some sort, either externally, internally, or both. Um, They also struggle with anger and they handle that differently. One of the types is actually very expressive and easily um, expresses their anger. The other two types in that triad actually suppress their anger and it comes out in different ways. So they don't think it's okay to be angry. So why do I share all of that with you when it comes to compassion? Because I think this is an easy way for us to really start to build our compassion muscle is understanding what gets people into trouble, right? When they're overdoing their strengths of, for instance, the gut center action orientation, they can actually leave people behind. They can be more intimidating as a group. And so thinking about how do we show up with our friendships where we know that some of these things that get them into trouble are real fears, are real things that hold them back, and maybe they're not even aware of that. And so how can compassion come along? When we seek to understand our people, it's important for us to slow down and acknowledge that what they fear is not what you fear and that you move toward them in compassion. It's not perfect, and it doesn't mean you do everything the way they want things done, but part of the awareness is understanding they see things differently. The last piece that I wanted to talk about is good friends know how to discern between compassion and enabling. The biggest question I get asked as an Enneagram coach is, my friend is an Enneagram, you fill in the blank, and they don't like this. So how can I give them difficult news? Or how can I challenge them with this or confront them with this? My answer is always the same, which is you don't actually need to enable them in their coping mechanisms so as we reviewed that um, the Enneagram types are coping mechanisms and sometimes we can get so overboard with our friendships that and wanting to especially if you're naturally compassionate I am not so, but some of us are and I think we can naturally want to not offend them or not hurt their feelings and sometimes what they need is a challenge a truth spoken in love And I see this all the time. People ask me all the time. Now I know that they're this number, so they don't like this. So how can I do this? And I always say there's a fine line between compassion and then enabling things that they need to work on, that God wants to work on them to make them who he wanted them to be. I have a a story about this. Um, I have this friend, Becky. And Becky and I are now at the same time. And... um, We met at the last church I worked at, but before I worked at the church, I attended the church and had gone to seminary. And my biggest dream was to work in ministry and get paid to do it. And really what it came down to is uh, I wanted Becky's job. She was the women's ministry director. (laughs) And as you can imagine, that created some tension for us early on. (laughs) So I became a volunteer in the women's ministry. And one day Becky invited me to go on this training trip. So we drove to Chicago, uh, and we did a kind of a, I think it was like a four-day training, three-day training on women's ministry and leadership. And I was all excited about it. I was honored to be invited. And then we get there and every person in the training, except for me, is a paid person at a church. And, um, when I look back on it, it seems really dumb, but that really triggered me. And I was feeling very self-conscious. I was feeling, Like God had forgotten me. I felt like Becky had forgotten me. And so uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, they'd train us and then they'd tell us to go work together and I would get really snarky with her about, she gets paid, I don't. And so we fought. Uh, And Becky, uh, I just talked to you about this type, but Becky is a type eight on the Enneagram. So she freely expresses her anger. And at that time I was really more of a runner. I didn't really like to talk about my anger. Um... And so we fought, we would fight in the room, and she would go for a walk, and I would cry while she left. And then we'd kind of work it out and go back to another training session and then have the same conversations over and over again. And it was really interesting because by the end, I was like, I don't know if I want to be friends with her anymore. (laughs) This is too hard on my ego. Uh, So we went for a walk to try to work it out, probably one of the last days. And she just asked me, what is really going on underneath and if you haven't gotten the drift of what I've been trying to say is, a lot of times what is happening on the surface is being caused by something underneath. And we very rarely look underneath, underneath the hood of what's, what we're doing. And so um, she asked me, and I was really afraid to sh- share with her. I didn't want to be vulnerable with her. And she said something that changed my life, changed our friendship. Um, she said, no matter what you say, I'm not going anywhere. And so I confessed to her and we had a great walk. And then we went to another training session and we fought again. (laughs) But the reality was I really wasn't self-aware and Becky could see that. And she knew the line between compassion and saying, yep, I get it. I get that you wanna be paid to be in ministry. I get that you wanna do this for a job. I know that's hard to be waiting on God to provide that place but she also knew that some of these behaviors were getting in my way. So we came back, and I, um, I avoided Becky for a while because it was a very silent car ride, six hours from Chicago here. Um, but I will tell you that she pursued, and um, to this day, she is someone I trust with the hard stuff. I allow her to speak truth over me um, with less weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, now than it used to be. And I think good friends know how to speak truth over us, don't they? They know we need those people in our lives so God can use friendships to transform us. And I don't know about you, but my friendship with her has been long. Um, I can't remember how long I've known her. Probably 25 years, maybe, 22 years. Um, I want to be that person to someone else, too. I don't want to be dancing the line and not being afraid to speak truth and love because I want to be compassionate. Ecclesiastes four nine through 12 talks about this, right? Um, two are better than one they, uh, because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't that the wedding verses? Does anyone, has anyone heard that at weddings? Um, the context, I just wrote a study on Ecclesiastes a few, um, few months ago. The context here is that right before this, the, these verses, um, the author is actually comparing the person who has no one. And the person who has no one who falls in a pit is actually having to dig themselves out of the pit. But the person who has someone, a trusted someone, has someone who can reach down their hand and pull them out of the pit. That's what Becky did for me. And I think that's what we want to do for our people, isn't it? We become better friends when we are willing to reach out our hand brave enough. This is hard. I'm just going to say it. It is not easy for most of us to speak truth over the people we love most and offend them possibly or risk our friendship or risk getting it wrong even. Sometimes we're not right because they see the world differently than we do. We are to be people who reflect the character of Christ by being brave enough to speak truth over our friends, to discern whether this moment calls for compassion or this moment calls for speaking truth over their lives. We're also to be people who are humble enough to hear the truth when our friends are brave enough to speak it. So as I close today, I feel like I always talk too fast. When I practice it at home, it's like an hour. And I thought, you all have reservations. I don't know how we're going to get through this. Uh, (laughs) But um, where are you at today? What is God inviting you to when it comes to friendship? When it comes to biblical friendship, that he wants to use you on mission to cultivate deeper friendships, and he wants to use friendships in your life to transform you. Maybe he's inviting you to self-awareness. Maybe he's inviting you to just live the examined life and know how you're showing up. Know what kind of quirks, what strengths that get overdone that are getting in your way of connecting with people. Maybe the invitation is for compassion. I know that's a big one for me, of how can I see from someone else's perspective, how can I see my friendships and my relationships the way God sees those people instead of the way I see them? Maybe he's inviting you to discernment. How do I discern between compassion and speaking the truth in love? Wherever you are, it starts with God. Um, I follow this guy on Instagram. I don't don't know how many of you are on Instagram. His his handle is gospel for Enneagram. He is a pastor and also an Enneagram coach. And he does a lot of posts on, you know, why we want to use it as a Christian. Um, And then where do we want to go from there? So this week, he just posted this post, which was very powerful, Um, but he quoted theologian John Calvin, and he says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. The thing is, is we can get carried away one end or the other. We can, like, be navel-gazing and examining ourselves till we're blue in the face and keep God out of it, or we can actually pursue the scripture and know all those things. It's what I talked about in the beginning, but... um, but we, maybe we don't know how to deepen our friendships and relationships and that gets in our way. The guy that posted concluded with this, we need both types of knowledge, God and, and ourselves. But we must not forget that studying a tool like the Enneagram isn't helpful unless we are also studying and experiencing the beautiful truths of our great God. We need both. And when we do both, we become better friends. And we become better friends. We become better disciples. So let's be people who pursue both.